this evening is uh, March 16th. It is uh, 2016. Our message is called Losing Takes No Effort. Relax, it's not a sports analogy. There will be no sports analogies used of any kind. I mean it as literally as I'm saying it. To lose something takes very little effort. It turns out that in the scientific world, entropy is a gradual decline into disorder. Usually, it can be considered to be a measure of a system's disorder. The degree to which entropy has taken hold has to do with how much chaos is in it. This is because things tend to decay. It's been that way since Adam sinned with Eve in the garden. That is the natural order of things. What happens to your garden if you don't weed it? It overgrows with weeds. What happens to last night's leftovers a month from now in the back of your fridge where you forgot it? Do they get better over time? What happens to them? See, things left unattended, things that you don't give proper action to, they get worse. They don't get better. And yet most of the Christian walk, what you're told is to sit in one place, be still, do nothing, or else you might break something. Don't, don't say that to them, you could hurt them. Don't do that or you could damage them. As if the most dangerous thing on the planet was your action. When in reality, the most dangerous thing on the planet is your inaction. We are often very concerned about the lost. Whew. Don't offend the lost. Well, how much worse than being on fire could it get? They're already lost. What are you so concerned about? I've often preached in places where they said, you caused us to doubt our salvation. And you think that's a bad thing. I'm more concerned with the person that has never considered that they may not actually be what they say they are. Turn with me to Exodus 25. We'll begin in the Torah of God. Y'all doing okay tonight? Some of you may feel just a little beat up from Sunday. We're going to knock off the ring rust tonight. It's going to be okay. By the end of it, you'll say, thank you, sir. May I have another? In Exodus 25, starting in verse 8. Then have them make a sanctuary for me. Hey, who is the sanctuary made for? For God. No. Then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. This is not Moses talking about the sanctuary belongs to Moses. It is not Moses in Gershom Ministries. The sanctuary exists for God. God just gave Moses the plan. He says, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Some people think it's great to be in the presence of their leaders. I think it'd be great to be in the presence of our king. Next time somebody is around you, name dropping. You know who I sat next to? I sat next to Bishop. Say, I, I, I met with Jesus Christ this morning. If we're going to name drop, we might as well go to the name that's above every name, right? He says in verse 9, Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings somewhat like the pattern you imagined. 
No. What does it say? Make this tabernacle and all of its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. I want to encourage you that this world has been in a state of decay since Eve first took a bite of a, a fruit she was not supposed to and her husband joined her in it. When that happened, the whole order of mankind became subject to entropy. But there is a kingdom that extends from the most high place that it is not racked with decay. It is not racked with sin. And some of the ancients saw into that kingdom and they began to build on earth based on what they saw there. Every once in a while, our archaeologists will uncover a civilization and they'll extrapolate out from the space between these two pylons how big this building must have been. Sometimes they'll find a, a tooth of some un, uh, extinct animal and by the time they're done with it, we've got a Tyrannosaurus Rex from that tooth in their model. Church, everything in this world is decaying. It is broken down. You don't believe that? Anybody seen Madonna lately? Man, back in the day, you know, somewhere around seventh grade, she was all of that. And entropy has taken hold. The things of this world are fleeting. They're fleeting. But we have had a glimpse into a world that is not fleeting. It is not decaying. Moses made a pattern of the tabernacle and all of the furnishings, the building, everything in the building, exactly like he was shown. Slide your finger down to verse 40 and say there when you're there. Wow, we only had slide a few verses. Where are the rest of you? Come on now, there. Come on in the back, there. Okay. See that you make them according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. While Moses was 40 days in the presence of God, he was seeing things in God's presence. Oh, isn't it beautiful how that works? When you stand in the presence of God, you see things that are in the presence of God. When you stand in the presence of the nasty, the decaying, the those suffering from entropy, you see the things that are decaying. But to the pure, all things are pure. If you spend time in the presence of God, you will begin to see the glory of God in places you never knew it existed. There is a heavenly pattern that men can glimpse into there. And we pray that it's established here, starting with us. How does it go? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Aside from my constant need to go back to the King James for the Lord's Prayer, you ought to have heard in that sentence that something that already exists there is being established here. Well, do we get to establish it any way we want? Can you imagine the audacity of Moses to be able to go, you know, when I looked into the heaven, I saw a sevenfold lampstand. But I think it would look better here since I'm building the tabernacle to put, I don't know, maybe five branches. He was told to make it, in fact, turn with me to Numbers. Look at Numbers 8. You'll just move to the right in your Bible. 
When you get to Numbers 8, find verse 3. Amen. Aaron did so. He set up lamps so that they faced forward on the lampstand, just as the Lord commanded Moses. This is how the lampstand was made. It was made of hammered gold from its base to its blossoms. The lampstand was made exactly like the pattern the Lord had shown Moses. Where is there room for deviation? Where is there room for Moses to put his own unique stamp on it? Have you ever considered the fact that whatever age you're in, the technology that you have is the best of the age up to that point? Like we think of Moses as, man, that time was archaic. But to Moses, what was it? It was the cutting edge. Don't you think that Moses could have looked at that lamp and said, you know, I think maybe for today's people, for, for the sake of today's audience, we probably need to adapt this thing a little. No, he made it exactly according to the pattern. Turn with me to the New Testament. Find the book of Acts. So you'll go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. When you get to Acts, find the seventh chapter. When you've discovered it, land on it and slide your finger down 44 times until you hit that verse. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Old and New Testament alike make the astounding declaration that Moses saw a pattern in the heavens and he built it on the earth. Put Hebrews 8 and verse 5 on the screen. You'll see this. You won't even have to turn there. How easy is that? They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. Are you kidding me? Before Moses began to build, God warned him. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Do you mean to tell me that God knew there was a little redneck engineering in everyone? You know what? This thing's 350 cubic inches. But I bored it out. You know what I did then? I made it 351. It's a modified. Look, what is it about us that makes us think that we can improve on God's design? I said, no, Eric, who would say that? Well, we don't say it. We just do it. You know, the Lord's uh, pattern is based on sacrifice. But, you know, this generation is just not all that into sacrifice. So let's appeal to greed instead. Nobody wants to give with a comment that, hey, you may never get this back. Not only may you never get this back, You could suffer because of this act of obedience. And in suffering for this act of obedience, everybody around you could think that you are a fool. But you'll be received into a kingdom that we've had a glimpse into. No, we don't hear that anymore. What we hear is every single act of obedience here on earth, even if it wasn't really obedience, it was just you, it would be met with sevenfold blessings. And if you don't get your sevenfold blessing, then you are cheated because God is really kind of like a slot machine, at least according to the common description. 
a slot machine that pays out every time, a scratch off that is a winning ticket every time. This is what we're hearing all around us, but it is not the pattern. The reason that I wanted to share this with you begins in the book of Corinthians in the 15th chapter. So say there when you were there. Corinthians, the 15th chapter. I'm going to begin in verse 1. It says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. Why do they need to be reminded? Do you think perhaps they might have maybe overemphasized one detail and left out another? Do you think maybe there's always been a natural tendency in man to adapt the heavenly pattern to something more palatable to him? Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. I'm, I'm going to hold there before we read the next part of this sentence. I'm not going to ask you to name names. I'm not going to name names. I promised my wife tonight I would be nice. Haven't we heard many times that once you've taken your stand on the gospel, it's sealed, it's done forever, there's nothing that could ever remove you from your stand? You, you are as sealed as could be. Have we never heard that? It's almost like God's hand's a prison that holds you in it. Of course, this says, by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Well, we could scratch that out of our Bible. We could adapt the heavenly reality to our earthly model. We could do that. We could say, you know, Lord, I like what I am saying here better than the word that came from the heavens. So what we're going to do is we're going to amend your word to fit our liking. Does that sound like a good idea to you? So how do you end up then deviating from a pattern? How does that happen? Well, one reason is maybe you looked at it. Maybe we looked at this picture of the Passover over here, this uh, feast that is the Last Supper, the Pesach, and we went, wow, that's amazing. But now it's been so long since we looked at it that when we see another version of it where they're sitting upright in chairs and the sun's outside and there's fish on the table instead of lamb and reclining and all of those things, we don't recognize the difference. Maybe we don't even realize that it's been manipulated and changed. We say, who are we to say that one painting is more accurate than another? Well, I guess it depends on how intimate you are with the subject. You know, we could paint a woman and she have all the same basic features as your wife, but does that make it your wife? How offended would you be if somebody painted a portrait of your wife and the hair, the height, the weight, the shape was all wrong? Would you take that personally? Why is it that we're not offended when people have departed from the heavenly pattern? I want to tell you why. Because we have an innate sympathy for it since we are all in a state of decay. Since all of us have a tendency to move from order to disorder, 
since all of us are in that situation, we, we go, oh, man, I'm sure they mean well. How they mean makes no difference. It either is the pattern or it's not the pattern. Listen to this next phrase. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. For what I received, I passed on to you. Where did he receive it? Anybody? Where did Paul receive? He received it from the heavens, just like Moses. Susan, can we put the Pyrrhike Avot on the screen? The Pyrrhike Avot is an ancient writing. It comes from the Midrashic period in Israel's history. If that's not, not uh, something familiar to you, I'm sorry, the Mishnaic period in Israel's history, we're talking about the time immediately after Christ. And it's a collection of sayings that go all the way back to the Babylonian captivity. And it loosely translates to the ethics of our fathers. And Jews recount this every single Sabbath uh, as a family. And do you know how it begins? It begins, what Moses received on the mountain, he gave to Joshua. What Joshua received from Moses, he gave the elders. What the elders received from Joshua, they gave to the men of the great assembly. And they believed that this forms an unbroken chain so that the pattern that was shown on the mountain to Moses was preserved from Moses to Joshua. And that it was preserved from Joshua to the elders. And from the elders to the men of the great assembly because they knew that if God showed them the pattern, they didn't have the right to change it in successive generations. Do you know how often they repeated that phraseology? A minimum of every week as a family. What this did for the Jewish people, among many other practices that they do, is it preserved the sanctity of the word. We had heard for many centuries, how could you know that the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah's day, when he wrote it, was the same as the book that Jesus was quoting when he said Isaiah? And how can we know that when we have a copy of Isaiah, it's the same as what Jesus said? And then, in the 40s, we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls dated before Jesus and the book of Isaiah matched exactly. Do you know why? They were faithful to the original pattern. When scribes copied the pattern, they considered it heavenly. So if there were a certain number of letters in a line, they kept that number of letters in the line. If there were a certain number of letters on a scroll vertically, they kept that number of letters vertically on a scroll, a single mistake could cause the whole book to be invalid because the pattern had to be perfect. Do you see where just a little bit of leaven, just a little bit of contagion, just a little catalyst could have changed the book of Isaiah for all time? What if we decided that he said lamb, but... It's only a few letters different. I think he meant lion. Behold, the lion of God come to lay down his life. <laughs> how much would that distort the truth? So how much of the heavenly pattern do you feel like you personally have the right to change? Somebody said none. How much of the pattern do you feel like the right 
of our national leader to change. In fact, who has the right to change the heavenly pattern? Then we better ask ourselves all around, how did we drift so far from the pattern? Is that not a fair question? Turn with me to 2 Timothy. We're going to be in 2 Timothy, the first chapter, for a little while. Hey, I, I thought of a, something from my generation. How many of you in here are in, in your 40s? Okay, keep your hands up. If you're above 35, throw your hand into that. All right, now we're talking. Okay, you can put them down now. Eight six seven five three oh nine. You knew that right away, didn't you? Because I got it. Is there anybody in this room right now that could stand up and name five phone numbers in a row with no help? When you were in eighth grade? How many phone numbers could you name? Before we had smartphones. Okay. Is it safe to say that many of us could name many phone numbers? I don't know, in the mid-80s? And now that, that ability is greatly diminished? On what day did you stop being able to remember those phone numbers? I don't know. I can still remember Jennifer's phone number in high school. You know? I don't know when I... Okay. Assuming that like me, you at least barely graduated high school. How many of you can find the area of a circle? I can Google it. All of you had to be able to find the area of a circle at some point. On what day did you stop being able to find the area of a circle? It's pi r squared. When did you lose it? What day did you lose it? How did you lose it? At some point it stopped being important to you, don't you think? Maybe you replaced your ability to remember phone numbers with something else that did it for you out of, I don't know, convenience sake. Maybe we just wanted to be comfortable. Are you in 2 Timothy, the first chapter? I want to start with you in verse 11. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. A herald announces, an apostle is sent, a teacher explains. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. I want to show you an alternate translation. Uh, Let's do the complete Jewish Bible. Uh, You got it there. It was for this good news that I was appointed a proclaimer, an emissary, and a teacher of the goyim. That word means Gentiles. And this is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed because I know him in whom I have put my trust. And I am persuaded that he can keep safe until that day what he has entrusted to me. There is a great question in 2 Timothy 1, chapter 11. Did we entrust something to the Lord Or did the Lord entrust something to us? The NIV, the King James, the New King James, they act as if we put something on deposit with God. The complete Jewish Bible and the Amplified say that God put something on deposit with us. The Amplified kind of splits the difference. Watch this. 
And this is why I'm suffering as I do. Still, I am not ashamed, for I know, perceive, have knowledge of, and am acquainted with him who I have believed, adhered to, and trusted, and relied on. And I am positively persuaded that he is able to guard and keep that which has been entrusted to me and which I have committed to him until that day. The Amplified has it as both. The truth is there's a Greek word here, apotheke, like an apothecary jar, and something is being put on deposit. The question is who put it on deposit with whom? With that in mind, pick up with me in verse 13 and we'll see if we can answer it. What you have heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Backing back up to verse 11. And of this gospel I was appointed a herald. Where did he get the gospel? Who gave it to him? The Lord did. An apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard What he has entrusted to me for that day is how I think you ought to read that. The Lord entrusted something to Paul. What did he entrust? A heavenly pattern, the gospel. Something that he saw in the heavens. Who was Paul's disciple? Timothy. What you have heard from me, me Paul, keep as the pattern, just like the pattern Moses saw, of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit. The natural flow of things would be that Jesus Christ would have to help Paul so that he didn't lose the pattern, he didn't corrupt it, he didn't mess it up somehow. And that he would have to transmit that pattern to Timothy. And he told Timothy, guard it, you protect it. It's been entrusted to you. I give you my child, I better get my child back, not just a piece of him, not my child plus a piece of someone. I want what I gave you back from you. God entrusted an eternal plan to Paul. He entrusted Paul to give it to Timothy. And Paul's encouraging Timothy, you will need the help of the Holy Spirit to be able to protect this. In the second chapter of, of Second Timothy, we see Timothy doing something with it. Look at verse 1. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things you have heard me say in the presence of witnesses entrust <clears throat> to reliable men who will be qualified to teach others. What was Timothy supposed to do with that which he was guarding and he was entrusted with? He was supposed to give it to other people. Well, let me ask you. If Paul was not faithful to the pattern, where does that leave Timothy? Isn't that an interesting thing? Isn't that worth asking? If Paul was faithful to Timothy, but Timothy was not faithful to guard it, where does that leave everybody that he entrusted uh, the work to? See, it only took one break in the link. Uh, Think about this. A man who knows the Bible well but doesn't require others to do so. Okay? Let's just say I know the Bible very well, but I don't really care whether you do. 
Okay, well, in your life then, what we probably have is men who know the things of God, but they'd really have to struggle to look them up, right? Like, I know that my pastor knows where this is. How much of that have you seen go on in church? In the next generation, you would have men who know that these things are in the Bible, but they have no idea where they are. I mean, we're talking about the Bible from a tribal knowledge standpoint. Like, you know, my grandfather, he used to preach about these things. And my father occasionally would read them. Now I am confident that they're true. Have you ever read them? No. Do you know where to find them? No, it's just printed on our wall. That leads to a generation of men who presume that they know their Bible. Like, that's in there, isn't it? Cleanliness, right next to godliness? It's not? What do you mean it's not? My grandmother used to say it is. That leads to people who want things to be in the Bible but don't particularly know whether they are or not. The Bible simply becomes a proof text for what they already wanted to do. What do we have to do to protect the pattern? And look how easy it is to lose it. Did any of you wake up one day and say, you know what? The 80s are over. I no longer want to remember phone numbers. Except for 8675309. Did any of you one day go, you know what? I think it's really important that at some point in my life I'm completely deficient in mathematics. Probably that was not the case. Let's begin with 2 Timothy 3.10 and a charge that was given to Timothy. Say there when you were there. In 2 Timothy 3.10, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and the persecutions I endured? Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Before I read the rest of this, is it safe to say that Timothy knew Paul very well? Hey, you know all about my way of life. And then we go through some things that probably you wouldn't... Well, I don't know. This generation puts everything on Facebook. But... We don't tend to put all of our struggles out there for the world to see, usually. That's, of course, we're very needy in begging the world for affirmation. But it used to be that only those who were very close to you knew the intimate details of your life. Is that true or not? I mean, ask your grandmother. (laughs) That's not. I noticed that when people go to a certain kind of female doctor... They ask for a history that starts, like, very young. There's a time period where, you know, they wouldn't have to provide this much space to fill that out. Like, it would be assumed that you had been godly until the place of marriage, right? That would just be assumed. In our great-grandparents' time, let's, let's start there for fun. To let people know very intimate details of your life would be an indication of how close they were to you. The gospel was transmitted from people who were completely intimate with each other in a very real, personal way where they could say, you know all about my way of life, 
my purpose, my faith, my patience. How do you know about somebody's patience unless you've known them a long time? Love, endurance. The gospel was transmitted from one person who knew another very well and vice versa. Is that the standard that we're clinging to today? Or do we like it when nobody knows the person who is speaking very well unless we have read, you know, about him in a magazine or something? See, the gospel was transmitted from one household to another from people who knew each other very, very well. This meant that you didn't think more highly of the person than you should. And you didn't think more lowly of the person than you should because you knew the person and could see how God was working in their life. This was to protect the pattern so that you wouldn't see it from a distance and misunderstand some of its details. You would be right up close to the pattern all of the time, able to walk around it, back up, ask questions, look at it in perfect detail. That was the plan. Now, that's difficult. How many of us buy handmade things these days? You know, if it's handmade, it costs a lot more because it requires somebody's time and personal attention. We like our things cheap and stamped out of an assembly line, probably from China. Do we have a cheap assembly line stamping of the gospel? Or can you say that the things that you learned about the Lord you either saw in the heavenlies... Or you learn through personal interaction with those you are competent came right out of the presence of God. Do you understand what I'm getting at? We may have accepted some wrong standards. I want to tell you in my life, I love to be around those that have never let go of the standard. We have patience for those who have. We love everyone, invite them back to the... You know, Charlie and Joe were spirit-filled in 1974. They've not had a year of their life where they were embarrassed of being spirit-filled. They've not had a month of their life where they did not pray in other tongues. They've not had a week of their life where they agreed to bury that in some kind of way for a perceived greater good. That means for 42 years, they have clung to the pattern. You know what that did for me at 18 years old? It let me know when I was in the pattern and when I was out of it. That when the Bible said something like pray in the Spirit on all occasions, surprisingly enough, it meant pray in the Spirit on all occasions. It did not need to be amended. The seven-branch menorah did not need to become five because today we only needed five. The five-fold ministry did not need to become a single branch of ministry because we thought apostles and prophets were, you know, just not for today. The heavenly pattern is the heavenly pattern. Let us keep going in in 2 Timothy 3.10, starting in verse 12. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You know why you'll be persecuted? Because entropy is in effect. The degradation of the pattern is the uh, common state for the world. It's at war with the pattern. It's always trying to conform you into something other than the heavenly pattern. So you have to push back. You have to take action. You have to treasure it. If there's one phone number that you do remember from the 80s, I bet it was of someone that you really cared about. The only one I can think of was Jennifer's number. 
And I had to wait till her parents had been asleep long enough they wouldn't hear the phone ring. While evil men and imposters go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. Do you hear how precious the links in the chain are? This means that Timothy, when he had moments of crisis, when he was concerned, he could stop and go, wait, I know the sincerity, the precious nature of, I know how treasured this is because I have seen firsthand that the one that I learned it from fought to keep it and it has blessed his life. How important is it then that we respect not only the heavenly pattern, but its chain of transmission? We can't decide because we're in the 21st century, we're not going to invite people into our homes. We can't decide that because we want to preach to thousands, we can no longer live in an open way where people get a chance to see how our wife and us interact, how our children interact. They no longer get to see that. We live behind gated communities and you see us in carefully secured, protected, photoshopped settings. That is not the gospel. It has never been the gospel. I was on that subject Sunday to the point that I probably rubbed a few of you a little raw. You should say thank you for that. If it makes you raw to be faced with the degradation of the pattern, what should make you whole is when you realize that you are rightly standing in the pattern. Because I learned something. I can tell you when I learned how to find the area of a circle, but I cannot tell you when I forgot it. I can tell you when I'm standing in the pattern, but I can't always tell you when I'm not. It's when I'm confronted with the pattern that I go, oh man, somehow or another, I have strayed from it. Are you following me here? For this reason, we need to ever keep the preaching of the correct pattern before us. We need to ever be refreshing that heavenly vision. We need to communicate it. We need to guard it. We need the help of the Holy Spirit to protect it and transmit it. This is why it's so important that you don't decide that in your expeditious, modern, very professional life, you don't decide to amend the pattern. Something as small as saying, you know, I'm not sure that section is ready for prophecy. So we are not going to prophesy in here. We'll destroy the pattern for that section as well. And before long... They'll know that the Bible talks about prophecy, but their children will only know that a couple generations ago, people used to prophesy. By the third or fourth generation, they'll say, what's prophecy? You wonder how we get to the positions that we're in. You can write down 1 Corinthians 4, 17, and Hebrews 13, 7 through 8. I'm going to paraphrase them for you. In 1 Corinthians 4.17, Paul is saying, Hey, Timothy knows all about my way of life, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. In other words, the only people that got to represent the heavenly pattern were those who had taken the time to not only learn it, but learn everything about and interact with those who had it. 
Guys, that kind of discipleship's dead. We call discipleship now when you attend a class full of hundreds of people and you can nod your head up and down with an open mouth at a few blanks. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's not discipleship. Discipleship is how do I take a beating for Christ because I watch someone take it. How do I face a bullet? How does it work when we're hanging off of a roof in Mexico and our materials are breaking and the weather is raining down on us and yet God has said and you do not quit until it's done? See, discipleship requires time, but the pattern is worth that time. Amen? Hebrews 13, 7 through 8 says to consider the outcome of the way of life of your leaders. How can you do that if you have no idea what their way of life is? Guys, we cannot... (laughs) So I was recently in a a very remote village in Africa. I love the folks there. They were talking about a message that they heard from a very popular American pastor. My gut feeling is that they were most drawn to him because he looked more like them than I look like them. Now, what I know is that the guy's way, 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 way off the pattern. He's got more in common with Oprah Winfrey these days than he does Jesus Christ. But I listen at how easily, how naturally it was for them to make the adjustment. Because if we're not going to stand in the pattern, we like to stand with those who aren't. And that way the contrast is not so strong. This is why lukewarm people. This is why people who have decided in some area to compromise the standard congregate together. Because it is biting. It is hard. It feels harsh when the bright light of God's presence shines on an area of your life that does not match the pattern, and we call it sin. It turns out that when light shines in darkness, darkness hates the light. It's not a hateful thing to turn the light on. It's not. But the darkness always perceives it that way. You hear things like, you know, it's not so much what Pastor Wade said. It's the way he flipped on that light switch. Really? Are you sure it's not the light you don't like? Guys, the reason we would take the time to talk about this, not just Sunday and not just Monday, but on a Wednesday night as well, is because I'm not concerned tonight with those outside of the building. I'm concerned with our natural tendency to lose the integrity of what God has said to us. Has the Lord spoken to you in the last five years? Raise your hand if you know that the Lord has spoken to you. If you had to write it down this moment, are you confident that every syllable is exactly what he spoke to you? Because when God spoke to the men of the past, we say it was verbal plenary inspiration. They recorded every syllable. Has it become cheap to you? Now, if there's a theologian out there watching this that gets upset because I equated a personal prophecy with the Scripture, I don't care. Now, while we're talking about this, I'm simply saying that the sanctity of what God is doing in your life only lasts as long as you treasure it and consider it sacred. Could you do a little better 
with that? See, I can live with the fact that I don't know many phone numbers anymore. I can live with the fact that I no longer know how to find the volume of a sphere. But I could never live with the fact that I was out of the pattern and didn't know it. Turn with me to Judges 16, 20. Then she called Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and he thought, I'll go out as before and I'll shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. That's a kind of spiritual entropy. It didn't require any effort for him to lose this. It required him to stop exerting effort to be holy. It required him to stop fighting his sinful nature and and get into the pattern. It required him to just stop. A little bit of apathy. In fact, Proverbs 6 and Proverbs 24, it's Proverbs 6.10 and Proverbs 24.33, exact same verse. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands. Poverty comes on you like a bandit. In other words, you don't have to do anything to have the, the pattern robbed from you. Interestingly enough, the first thing that goes, the very first thing, are the demonstrable spiritual aspects of the faith. The first thing that the devil takes from you is the boldness to live in a spiritual way in front of others. It's the very first, you can chart it with certainty. If you are going to plant a church, if you are going to go be a missionary somewhere, the first thing that the devil will war with you about is, is it really necessary for you to be quite so bold about every letter of the word? Can't we just kind of move that to the background a little bit? I mean, after all, if there's nobody to preach to, what good is it? Well, what good is it if everybody you're preaching to is only there because they wouldn't like it if you preached everything that is in the word? You know, nobody decides, I want to be weak and captive that's not what Samson did. He didn't even know that the Spirit of the Lord had left him. How about Isaiah 42? Isaiah 42, pick up with me in verse 24. Say there when there. Isaiah 42, 24. Somebody there? Which of you, I'm sorry, 24, who handed Jacob over to become loot and Israel to the plunders? Was it not the Lord? Against whom have we sinned? For they would not follow His ways. They did not obey His laws. So He poured out on them His burning anger, the violence of war. It enveloped them in flames. Yet they did not understand. It consumed them, but they did not take it to heart. Do you mean to tell me you could be being spanked by God and still have no idea that it's because you had disobeyed His Word? Yes, that's what deception is. In fact, you might even get to a place where you hate those and consider them holier than thou who simply say things like, hey, this word says must. What gives you the right to make it something other than must? Well, wait, is not so much what you said. 
It's the way that you pointed to what the Bible says that really upsets me. Maybe you could have used Christie's finger. See, these are arguments from people that hate the standard, but I'm not concerned about that. I'm concerned about the fact that I can't tell you when I stop being able to find cosine and tangent. I know that I used to be able to do it, but I don't know why I can't do it now. So, oh, well, we just fell out of habit. Yes. Have you fallen out of habit for receiving spiritual things, standing on spiritual things? You know, it's so easy to hide behind administrative tasks, hide behind all you have to do. Before you know it, your life is defined by everything other than being led by the Spirit when being led by the Spirit is the only thing that matters. Do you think that you have to be bad, malicious, or mean? Look around us. The world is full of good men who set out to change the world and were changed by the world instead. And they think they're doing a great service to Jesus Christ with their playlands. They're confident. And so are the masses. Yes, we have a chicken cam at our church. We have wife-carrying contest. Next year, we'll bring in a giraffe. And after all, look at all we're doing for Jesus. These are not bad people. They're people just like you. But somewhere along the way, the standard became a little less precious. And once you've bent in one area, what's to say that we can't apply it a little differently in this area? It is a slippery slope once you start to equivocate about the Scripture. Turn with me to Hosea 7. By the way, it says something too when you're preaching and people have no idea where the books are, but they've been in church for 10 years. I mean, that, that's amazing. How important are the books? <laughs> Which one of them should we just tear out? In Hosea 7, pick up with me in verse 8. Ephraim mixes with the nations. Ephraim is a flat cake, not turned over. Foreigners sap his strength, but he does not realize it. His hair is sprinkled with gray, but he does not notice. Israel's arrogance testifies against him, but despite all this, he does not return to the Lord his God or search for him. Ephraim is like a dove, evilly, easily deceived and senseless. Come on, church. If it can happen to an entire nation, if it can happen to men, I'm going to just be very, very honest. Some of the greatest men of God I've ever known, eventually, because of fear and insecurity, lacked the standard, and today they are a shell of the men that I once knew. In my own life, many times, there's a time... When I was in a church, I was ordained, I was on staff. The church was thriving. It was about like this one now. And I began to have friction with some folks around me, and I wasn't sure why. They said things like, you know, we don't need to witness to those people in that apartment complex. I'm not sure they would fit in here. It really bothered me. I was beginning to show more loyalty to human beings then I was the standard of God. And he loved me enough to tear me out of that place. They weren't bad people. Any more than I was a bad, they didn't realize that they were losing a grip on the pattern that God had given. So I found myself in a new city. Now since the standard had separated me from everybody that I had known and loved, I was a little upset with the standard. Why can't I be like everybody else? 
Why do these things matter in the way that they do to me? Can't I just, you know, get along? I mean, at least with the people who call themselves Christians. Church, how sacred is the standard to you? I'm going to tell you, I've known some of you a long time. We've helped snatch each other back from serious mistakes because you don't know when you're losing it. You just know when you find it again. See, you couldn't tell me the day that you'd stop remembering phone numbers, but you'll remember the day that you can memorize them again. You couldn't tell me the day that you stopped knowing the area of a circle, but you could tell me if you can complete it tonight. You don't know that you're sliding from the standard until you're confronted with the standard and you're in it again. And then all of a sudden you're like, what was I thinking? Popularity was important to me again. I was trying to fit in with those people and they were headed away from the standard. Deception is exactly that. It's deception. Israel had no idea that they were headlong into judgment. Apathy, a lack of tenacity, guarantees that entropy will eliminate the spiritual aspects of the faith. That's why Romans 12, 11 says, keep your spiritual fervor. Do you know that the Bible commands you, Romans 12, 11, to keep your spiritual fervor. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. How's your fervor doing? Would people describe you as having fervor for the Lord? But it doesn't stop there. The truth is, is when apathy sets in and your fervor dies, before long you can be so far from God while claiming to serve Him. We see it all around us. I think the largest ministries in the world fit into this category. Proverbs 8.34 is something I want to put on the screen. I want you to consider it. Let, it. let it hit you for a minute. If you had to reproduce that painting, if you were going to reproduce it, you probably would put it right in front of you. Every stroke you would compare to what was there. You would daily have to check it over and over and over and over because you know that your memory is not sufficient. You even might... Deceive yourself in remembering it as you would like it to be rather than as it is. So Proverbs 8.34 says, Blessed is the man who listens to me watching how often at my doors? Daily. Daily. How often are you going back to the Lord, not complaining about the largest ministry in the town, but going back to the Lord saying, Lord, am I in your standard? Right now, this second, have I taken you as seriously as you want me to? Not last week, not last month, today. Did I hit your mark for me today? See, our capacity for self-deception is extraordinary. You know, I was thinking about it. I picked up this in the grocery store, the story of Jesus. And when you open it in the National Geographic magazine, man, it's beautiful pictures. The world of Jesus, the early years of Jesus, the ministry, the passion, Christians in his footstep. These are the topics. If you have to have a secular magazine tell you about this, let me ask. So the generation right after Jesus, did they know what he looked like? I would think so. Because they were in contact with people who saw him. How many generations did we have to get to before people no longer knew what he looked like? You know, how tall was Jesus? Can anybody tell me? Uh, 
Can, can you tell me how many teeth Jesus was missing? Can you tell me what color his eyes were? How do we get to a place where men who knew that no longer exist? Somewhere along the way, it had to be an unimportant detail, huh? How do we get to a place where we have to rediscover the world of Jesus? Because somewhere along the way, one generation took it lightly that they had been handed it and they didn't think it was worth retaining, keeping correctly, and handing to them. They didn't guard what they had been entrusted with. Could we play that video? I want you to hear this for a minute and then we're going to finish with a cycle through the kings. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I yield back balance of my time. Mr. Forbes. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, on April 6th of this year, the President of the United States traveled halfway around the globe and in the nation of Turkey essentially proclaimed that the United States was not a Judeo-Christian nation. Now, I don't challenge his right to do that, nor do I dispute the fact that that is what he believes. But I wish that he had asked and answered two questions when he did that. The first question was whether or not we ever considered ourselves a Judeo-Christian nation. And the second one is if we did, what was that moment in time where we ceased to be so? If you ask the first question, Mr. Speaker, you find that the very first act of the first Congress in the United States was to bring in a minister and have Congress led in prayer and afterwards read four chapters out of the Bible. A few years later, when we unanimously declared our independence, we made certain that the rights in there were given to us by our Creator. When the treaty was signed in the Treaty of Paris in 1783 that ended the Revolutionary War and birthed this nation, the signers of that document made clear that it began with this phrase, in the name of the most holy and undivided Trinity. When our Constitution was signed, the signers made sure that they punctuated the end of it by saying, in the year of our Lord, 1787. And a hundred years later, in the Supreme Court case of Holy Trinity Church versus the United States, the Supreme Court indicated after recounting the long history of faith in this country that we were even a Christian nation. President George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, Abraham Lincoln, William McKinley, Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, Herbert Hoover, Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, Dwight Eisenhower, John Kennedy, Ronald Reagan all disagreed with the president's comments and indicated how that the Bible and Judeo-Christian principles were so important in this nation. And Franklin Roosevelt even led this nation in a six-minute prayer before the invasion of perhaps the greatest battle in history in the invasion of Normandy and asked for God's protection. And after that war, when Congress came together and said, where are we going to put our trust? It wasn't in our weapon systems or our economy or our great decisions here but it was in God we trust, which is emboldened directly behind you. So if, in fact, we were a nation that was birthed on those Judeo-Christian principles, what was that moment in time when we ceased to so be? What was that moment in time when we ceased to be? See, this, this brings back to memory something that we ought to know. You don't ever know the moment that you lost something. You just know the moment that you regain it. Philippians 3.17 says something extraordinary. 
It's, it's extraordinary. And I think you may just many times like me have read over it. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. I would say take note of those who don't live according to the pattern. Hey, if they're out of the pattern, take note of them. It's not what it says. It says take note of those who do live according to the pattern. Do you know why? Because they'll always be in the minority. Take note of those who care about the sanctity of the transmission of the Word, about the sanctity of living out the actual first century faith. Take note of them. We take note of men who have abandoned it in wholesale fashion and justify it by the number of people that take note of them. The Bible says to take note of people who live according to the pattern, not to hate them, not to be mad at them, not to wish that they weren't shoving it in your face. Take note of them. We could argue all night long about what generation it was that our nation really gave over to secularism. We might have extended debates about how godly this nation ever was, but if you can assume that at some point... There was at least a majority of people who wanted to do what was right. At what point did we lose it? I don't know. I just know it's been lost. You know how I know that? Because I stand inside of the truth now and I can see they're not in it. See, when you stand in the revelation, you can see those that don't have it. But when you don't have the revelation, you don't even know it. I mean, can't we all just get along? Why are you people so narrow? Why are you so difficult? Why do you think it has to be your way or the highway? Boy, if I've heard that one once, I've heard it a thousand times. You misunderstand me. It's not my way. If this were my way, you have no idea how liberal it would be. It's not. It's His way. And His way is everything to me. I want to illustrate something to you as we close. Then we're going to take communion, and there's a reason we take communion. Communion is a face-to-face collision with the seriousness of what we've received. Communion is that moment where you go, you know what? Somebody died over this. They died for me. I might as well have killed him myself. How important is it then? So we don't do communion yearly. The, the Jews did Passover yearly. We don't do it yearly. How, what did Jesus say? We do this often in remembrance of Him. Why often? So you would remember how important the standard is. Amen. Forgive me if I won't have long extended debates with people in this church anymore on any level about the sanctity of the standard. I'm just going to look at you and realize you don't see what I see and pray you get a revelation. Church, we cannot lose this. We can't. If we do, what will be the outcome of all of those who are supposed to be saved from imitating your way of life? Oh, wow. Deuteronomy 31. We're going to go from Deuteronomy to 2 Kings. If that discourages you because it's 9.05, I'm going to go quickly, but I am not going to deviate from the pattern. This is so beautiful. It is so beautiful that it's worth getting home a little late. It's so beautiful that if a restaurant or two closes, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. In Deuteronomy 31, starting in verse 24, 
After Moses finished writing in a book the words of this law, from beginning to end, somebody say beginning to end. He gave this command to the Levites who carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. There it will remain as a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stiff-necked you are. If you have been this rebellious against the Lord while I am still alive and with you, how much more will you rebel after I die? Do you think that Moses knew they would have to be reminded of every letter of the standard? Wonder why he didn't just give them 14 doctrinal points. Or say, you know what? Connect. Share. Serve. Get Botox. Every letter was recorded for all of posterity's sake. And where was it placed? We have the authority of the Scripture placed right next to the power of God because all error, according to Mark 24, or 12, 24, comes from not knowing the Scripture or the power of God. So he set them beside each other. Friends, if Moses wrote it down, and said, set it beside the ark, then every letter of this book is no more disposable than the very presence of God. Joshua 1.8, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it, not some things, not the things you want to do, not just the things people find popular, everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Joshua was to speak it, to mumble it, to meditate on it, to consider it in prayer. In fact, in Joshua 8, 34, after a battle, listen. He says, afterward, Joshua read all the words of the law. How many? All. Joshua read the entire book of the law to the people in one setting. And we have to have 20 and 40 minute services? How long would it take you to read Deuteronomy in one setting? Afterward, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it was written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read the whole assembly of Israel. Oh, hear this, children's church. Hear this, ladies. Hear this, children, including the women and children and the aliens who lived among them. It didn't matter whether Hebrew was your first language. It didn't matter whether you were a child or a woman. He read every word to every person. But we're convinced that we need a different gospel for children, a different gospel for ladies, a different gospel for effeminate men, a different gospel for firefighters, a different gospel for rednecks, a different gospel for everyone. Church, there was one standard, one pattern. And the truth is, no matter which one of those categories you fall into, the standard would transform you. We didn't need different categories because the one standard would affect all men equally. Pastor, I just can't go to your church on Wednesday nights. Okay. Joshua 24, 26. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under an oak tree near the holy place of the Lord. Not only did Joshua be faithful to take what had been entrusted to him and guard it, Joshua added and grew it. 
He wrote down the experiences that he had as directed by God. That's how we know about Joshua facing five kings uh, on behalf of the Gibeonites. It's how we know about Joshua taking on uh, the Jebusites. It's how we know about Joshua doing things. He recorded in the book of the law the part of the pattern that was revealed to him. See, we get the gospel, the pattern, we guard it, but we also grow it, and then we give it. What you don't have the right to do is amend it and change it and abrogate it or abridge it. You can't do that, no matter who says that it's a popular or a good idea. In 1 Kings 2, verse 2, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. This is David. He said, so be strong. Show yourself a man and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and requirements as written in the law of Moses so that you may prosper in all you do wherever you go. And the Lord may keep his promise to me if your descendants watch how they live and if they will walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. Listen. This is the father, David, speaking to his son, telling him that you will have to carry out every word in the book of the law. You know why that was so important? The book of the law is not mentioned one time in the book of Judges. Not once. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Have you ever wondered why there's such crazy stories in the book of Judges? They were off the pattern. They were so far from it. Well, which judge lost it? I have no idea. I just know that when a man found it, he was said to be after God's own heart. And so he tells his son, hey, walk in these ways. All the kings after this were measured by whether they they loved the law of the Lord like David did. Did they keep the pattern like David did? Did they see what David did and learn from it and carry it out and transmit it? Did they do that or did they abridge it in some way? Do you know how many generations we make it before they abridge it again? One, David's son Solomon begins to walk in ways that are not God. So his son Rehoboam splits the kingdom. And Rehoboam and Jeroboam, the first kings of a divided Israel, the king of Judah, uh, Rehoboam, a king of Israel, Jeroboam. And you know what happens? Jeroboam says, we're going to do this differently. We're going to choose a different place to worship. We're going to do it in a different month. We're going to choose different priests. I mean, I have the right for convenience sake to make the gospel more appealing to the masses. Just sticking with the kings that were in the right house. We go from David and Solomon. The next time the book of the law is mentioned is the fourth king of Judah. Okay? Second Chronicles 17, 7 through 9. I'll read it to you. In the third year of his reign, he sent his officials, Ben-Hael, Obadiah, Zechariah, Nathaniel, Micaiah, to teach in the towns of Judah. With them were certain Levites, Shemaiah, Nathaniah, Zebediah, Asha'el, Shemiramoth, Jehonathan, Adonijah, Tobijah, Tob Adonijah, and the priest of Elishama and Jerom. They taught throughout Judah, taking with them the book of the law of the Lord. When you're looking at the kings of Israel, put and yeah, leave those on the screen. On the right-hand side, we go from Rehoboam to Abijam to uh, Asa to Jehoshaphat. 
While we're reading about Jehoshaphat, the book of the law is there. It was there before this list started, and it's there with Jehoshaphat. We don't see the book of the law again till we get to Amaziah. He's ninth on the list. Do you see him? He's between Joash and Azariah. Do you see him there? In 2 Kings 14, 5, listen. After the kingdom was firmly in his grasp, he executed the officials who had murdered his father, the king. Yet he did not put the sons of the assassins to death in accordance with what was written in the book of the law of Moses where the Lord commanded, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their father. Each is to die for their own sins. I want you to understand something. We go from Jehoshaphat, the fourth king, all the way down to Amaziah, the ninth, and the book of the law was not mentioned. Is it any wonder that during Jehoram's reign, uh, Aziah's reign, Athaliah's reign, the queen, that things were weird, that they were sinful? But when we see the book of the law again, we see people taking actions that were godly and right. Crazy. We get all the way down to Josiah, the 16th king in Israel. And in 2 Kings 22, 8, let's put that on the screen. 2 Kings 22, 8. You're going to want to know this. Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan who read it. Do you know what's never recorded in the scripture? When they lost it. Nobody noticed when they lost it. They just noticed when they found it again. And do you know when they find it, what happens? There is national revival. They repair the temple of the Lord. They drive back their enemies. They are prosperous despite God's decree that He would judge them for the sin that had been so abundant. When they found the book of the law, the king tears his clothes. He didn't know how bad off he was until he encountered the pattern again. We don't know how many kings never saw the book of the law. We just know that when they found the pattern, there was life. How important is it that we stay in this? You know, as just a way to close this message, let's go to 1 Corinthians 11. It's our last scripture. We're going to put it on the screen. Matthew, would you come up here? 1 Corinthians 11. Follow my example (laughs) as I follow the example of Christ. Does it sound like Paul had the pattern and expected you to follow it? Look at verse 23, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. Do you recognize that language now? For what I saw in the heavens, what I got from Him, that I gave you. Now, what would happen if he didn't give it to us? Or if in the second generation they decided to change it? The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus Christ is the Word of God. His body was broken for you. The Word of God is as precious as Jesus' broken body. So don't sit here and tell me that I should be nicer to people that abridge and abrogate God's Word. 
Don't try to tone me down and tell me, you know, Eric, I just, I don't, we catch more flies with honey. I'm not interested in catching flies. I'm interested in guarding with the help of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit the pattern that's been entrusted to me. I'm interested in finding as much of it as I can and giving it to those who will cherish it, who are reliable men, who will transmit it in its absolute purity to the next generation. Because the world depends on our ability to do so. This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, he said. See, every time you remember the great cost at which you got a glimpse of the heavenly pattern, the pattern becomes precious to you. If your father was dismembered before your very eyes because you did not remember a phone number, you would never forget that phone number for as long as you were alive. The king of glory died for us to preserve a heavenly pattern. That kingdom there is coming here, he said. He gave us all authority in heaven and on earth so that we would advance his kingdom, not ours, not build our own, not decide we need a playland, a Starbucks, and a gospel light. That we would have the purity of what he died to give the world. In some power or another, we've fallen so far, just like that congressman was talking about, that we think it's strange when somebody is fighting for the purity of what he gave us. Friends, I'll go toe-to-toe with you. I'll go toe-to-toe with any national leader, anybody, anywhere in the world, because Jesus Christ is worth it. But the ones that I care most about He entrusted to the pastors and elders in this church, and that's you. And I want you to understand something. All you have to do to lose the pattern is nothing. That's all you have to do. If you just sit still and say, I won't move, I won't do anything, the natural movement of mankind will pull you right out of the truth. You need a collision with the truth of the gospel. That's why Jesus said, do this often in remembrance of me. Tonight, I'm going to invite you to revisit the sanctity of the offering of Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite you to revisit the way in which you view the word. The way that you view the moving of the spirit what you call a church, what you call a pastor, an apostle, a prophet, a teacher, and an evangelist, I'm going to tell you that tonight you need to consider rolling back worldly thoughts about all of these things. And if it's not written in the Word, then it does not find a place in your heart. But if it's written in the Word, that settles it for all mankind, for all time. I'm going to be perfectly clear right here. You may not like some of the things that I do. You may love some of the things that I do. The absolute standard for the Stevens, for the Sutherlands, for the Piros, is it either is or is not written. I refuse to place a rule there that is not written 
and I refuse to break a standard that is written. And where I sin, and it happens more often than I would like, I am more than willing to repent publicly so that all can see that was not the standard and we need to move into it and apologize publicly to you. That's not because I'm more humble than every other person. You know it's not true. It's because I value the standard more than I value my reputation. Amen. Could y'all stand to your feet?